Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. This train is for Aberdeen. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform as you leave the train. The trip to Scotland's east coast rolls through some of the prettiest scenery in Scotland, and that's saying something. On my way here, I watched ragged cliffs drop off into the North Sea, sheep grazing on grasslands perched right above the ocean. And then the first view of my destination, Aberdeen, and the quiet hum of the harbor that has played host to more than one boom and one bust over the centuries. In times past, the herring that were caught by the millions offshore were called the city's silver darlings. Neighborhoods like Old Tory sprouted on the waterfront, only to be bulldozed when the silver darlings were pushed aside by the allure of black gold, the oil lying under the seabed. In fact, Aberdeen has gone through so many transitions. The city burned down in the 14th century, but was rebuilt. It was repeatedly scarred by war, both medieval and modern day. Now change is in the wind again, blowing investment away from black gold and toward a green future. And once again, that change is testing the people of Aberdeen and causing tension. Yeah, I could lose my my job because at the end of the day, my CV stands up. But my political opinions and my opinions on energy transition, they might upset people and they can just say no. Couldn't believe it. And I actually spent the whole weekend, believe it or not, I was crying because it just, it just beggars belief that they want to take our part. I'm sorry, I get very emotional about it. Basically, they said that uh, this is a dirty business. They really didn't want to be part of it anymore. And I really felt it because I've been part of it for (laughs) so long. And that really made it down on me that, yeah, I need to do more. It's a complicated cautionary tale that could hold lessons for Canada as the country works toward its own passage from fossil fuels to renewables. I'm Laura Lynch. This is a special documentary edition of What on Earth from Aberdeen, Scotland. In the search for solutions, we examine the trouble with transition. The men, and it's almost all men, who work on the oil rigs dotted through the North Sea have a routine. Every time the helicopters fly them back from their three-week stay, they land at this airfield on the outskirts of the city. They walk out through the fence, over the railroad tracks, and straight into the Spider's Web pub. (laughs) It's easy to spot them. It's early afternoon in the small, cozy space that's lined with dark wood. The green leather bar stools are busy. The pool table? Not so much. The rig workers are the burly guys clustered around a few tables, their duffel bags piled up against the far wall. 
The pints of draft and Guinness drain fast. What we're doing right now, this, drinking when we get home. Coming home, yeah. <laughs> Coming home, that's, that's the best thing. Yeah. And the first stop is the top? You would get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. Famous spider's web. Yeah, when you've done three weeks rehab, you know, your, your liver's looking forward to a good session. <laughs> it needs it. We're, clean, we're, we're totally cleansed. Cleansed. <laughs> Fruit and vegetables and pint of water. So three weeks of that, that's enough for anybody. Eh? I walked into the spider's web, uncertain whether any oil and gas workers would talk to me. Talking about the end of the oil and gas industry isn't much of a conversation starter in these parts. But as my luck would have it, I interrupted them just as they were talking about Canada. So when you guys come here after the conference, what's the conversation? What did I interrupt when I came and sat down? Hold this to Canada, actually. <laughs> Canada and America, we were talking about. Yeah, we're debating Canada. It was really weird when you actually come over. It was really weird, yeah. You were kind of eavesdropping there, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> when, when you when you walked over, I thought she's she's heard was yeah. talking about Canada. I thought I thought you were some kind of irate wife. <laughs> Ice broken, beer flowing, the banter began. All these guys, every single one of them, don't like their job so much, but they're also secure, certain in their belief their jobs aren't going to disappear in their generation. Or the generations to come. Even in 50 years, it's still going to be there. They're always going to need oil. It's just going to be wiped down a little bit. Has it already slowed down? Can you Not see yet. That? No. Well, I think if you look at the Scottish government at the moment, they've already looking to cancel contracts that have been put in place. Even in 50 years, he says they're going to need oil. They're only thinking it's going to be wiped out a little bit. We'll hear more from the guys later on. Aberdeen's winter weather doesn't make the beach all that inviting. But there are things to see. Over to the north, just offshore, a small wind farm. In fact, too close for former U.S. President Donald Trump. To him, they're an eyesore adjacent to his notorious golf course. So that kind of makes the windmills acceptable here. In fact, the Scottish government faced a lawsuit launched by Trump to stop the wind farm. He lost. But I digress. I moved to a courtyard across the street, less windy, to meet someone who wants to share his own opinions about wind farms, green energy, and the fossil fuels that vaulted the city into top-tier wealth decades ago. So are, am I hearing you correctly then that, that you actually support the idea of, of getting out of fossil fuels? Yeah, we've got to get out of fossil fuels. It's, there's no ifs, buts, or maybe about it. We've got to find replacement sources, and we've got to do it soon. He's hunched over against the biting wind, a cigarette gripped between two fingers. His views about fossil fuels may set him apart on the job because he spent a lifetime working in the industry. We've agreed not to identify him because of his fear he'll lose work for speaking out. So we're calling him Jason Bruce. There is a kind of, I said, climate denial and everyone wants to carry on the same way. 
So I'm talking to you today anonymously, but I'm sure there's plenty of people that will actually know who I am, but I can I can actually deny it. But What's at stake for you? Yeah, I could lose my, my job because the person can... At the end of the day, my CV stands up, but my political opinions and my opinions on any transition, they might upset people and they can just say he's not required back. The work he does, servicing offshore rigs by boat, unloading heavy equipment in stormy seas can be very dangerous. And though he's 48, he says he feels older. His back aches when it's cold. But the industry has given him a steady job, just as it's given Aberdeen decades of wealth and stability. And he can't see an easy transition to a role in the renewable energy sector. So we're within sight of um, some offshore wind turbines. I'm wondering how much of your work these days is in the offshore wind sector. There's absolutely none at the moment. There's no standardization, so at the moment it's not worth my while because there's still enough work in oil and gas? There's still enough work in oil and gas. From the seaside to a corporate office in downtown Aberdeen, another long-term oil man carries a different perspective on the past and future of the industry. Uh, I am Murat Keçe. I am uh, originally from Turkey, but I have been living and working in the UK in the last 40 years, and I have been working primarily in the oil industry. Murat Kecha has made a comfortable living in Aberdeen as an oil executive. He moved here from Turkey, as he said. There, years ago, Shell Oil admitted to pumping polluted materials into an underground reservoir in the southeast of the country. That seeded some doubts in him, and over the years as he raised his children, those doubts grew. Another factor which really affected me was obviously I was very aware of uh, the impact we have oil and uh, basically carbon-based fuels have on the overall climate, but also how essential they are for uh, maintaining the economies. But when both of my kids are engineers, so they graduate from the universities and I introduced them to oil companies and both refused after spending a month, they both refused to work for oil companies. And I realized that they are much more aware of uh, the consequences than I was. Basically, they said that uh, uh, this is a dirty business. They really didn't want to be part of it anymore. And I really felt it because I've been part of it for (laughs) so long. And that really made it down on me that, yeah, I need to do more. So now Kecha is out of the business and he's helping other companies figure out the best way to transition to cleaner energy. He's watched Aberdeen celebrate boom times and he's watching it struggle now. Do you think that Aberdeen and the people who live here have come to grips with the fact that oil and gas is no longer tenable or provides a a good future for the city and the planet? I think they did. I mean, uh, the Aberdeen has lost more than 100,000 jobs. And uh, I mean, the difference is so stark. You you wouldn't believe the uh, number of people we had on the streets, the buzz we had in the town if you compare it to 2015 uh, days. So just looking at that, there is that.
There's another place I went to in Aberdeen where the past and future collide. It's on the old stone campus of the university that was founded 500 years ago, and it attracts students who see both the city's charms and complications. Well, um, everything is built in granite here, and in summer, when the sun is out, all the small crystals in the granite shines, so the city kind of sparkle. However, in the winter, that means when that gets wet, it looks like it's melting, so it looks like a candle that's melting, so it can be difficult to get through the winters, to be honest. Uh, my name is Frederick Bjergaard, I'm 23, I'm studying mechanical engineering uh, and I am the co-president of the Society for Energy Transition at Aberdeen University. Frederick Bjergaard came here from Denmark and he wants the kind of work, the kind of future that could put the backbone of the city's economy at risk. And he recognizes it's the very industry he wants no part of that's helping to fund the very program he's studying. Has he made a deal with the devil? a lot of money in the university in the engineering department so therefore the engineering department is good um, and it's a bit uh, paradoxical that I'm studying for a renewable energy that's largely paid by uh, with oil money so to speak um, but I think at least take the money and do something good with it. Yergard knows he won't stay here after he graduates. He wants to travel and he doesn't see any future for himself in a city that still relies so much on fossil fuels? Well, uh, it is a, known as a big oil uh, city, and it's definitely a big oil city. A, lo- a large percentage of the economy here is driven by uh, oil, the oil industry. Uh, and just seeing as when you go around the roundabout, you have these um, kind of commercial billboards. Uh, they're quite small for the council, where underneath it says Aberdeen, the oil capital of Europe. So. I guess they're perpetuating the stigma themselves as well, uh, trying to brand them like that, but it is fairly widely known that it's mainly an oil production city, this. And it might seem like an obvious question, but, but why is that a problem? It's a problem when you're trying to, I guess, when you're trying to attract a different project. And there will be some pushback from, from industry as well here because uh, they might be losing uh, a market share. Um, so, so that, that, that's a big problem. Uh, it can be an opportunity as well because you've got an industry of really skilled engineers here that do uh, subsea engineering. Uh, so trying to re-educate them into building windmills rather than oil wells, uh, you could do that. But obviously, it's, if you have to tell someone who's 50 who's been doing the same thing since they were 20, it might be a bit of pushback that they have to change. Well, you can understand how attached people are to what has given them jobs. Definitely, definitely. It's, it's, it's not. I'm not without compassion for them because it's definitely a bad situation that they will be in and it's going to have a economic effects, however you're going to put it. It's just the question is when you're going to take the, the hit because it's going to come at some point. Back on the waterfront, Jason Bruce is taking me on a walking tour. Past the pizza places, the food trucks, the Ferris wheel, and the shuttered summertime seasonal shops, he's brought me to Fudi, an old fishing village. It's now a small collection of restored houses. Very few men and women in the fishing industry actually live here now. A lot of the houses are passed down generation to generation, but it's also, the housing is very expensive here as well. And right beside it, the harbour, first established in 1136. These days, after the decline in oil prices, it's pretty quiet. 
Some of the ships that supply the rigs or repair them have relocated to a cheaper port down the coast. This has been an industrial area since the 1970s. Uh, we've got the, the old village of Fitty, which is all old fishermen houses. There used to be a corresponding village across in Torrey, but it was knocked down in the 70s to basically provide key space for the oil and gas industry. As he says, old Tory, that fishing village, was demolished in the 1970s to make way for the offshore industry. And from here, as I look across the harbour, I can just see the top of a nearby hill. The next surprising battleground in Aberdeen's tale of a transition. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, welcome to the St. Fittix Community Garden. Uh, this is just a new initiative in the area. At the top of that hill is where I meet Leslie Ann Mulholland. She's bundled in a raincoat to protect against the short, sharp showers that are falling intermittently on us. Mulholland has felt the call to duty, the call to protect the green space where she and thousands of others live, the lush greenland we see spreading out below us and just above the sea in the neighbourhood known as New Tory. The legend is that St Fittuk uh, was washed up on the shore here, uh, I can't remember how many hundreds of years ago, and uh, there was a healing well found and they healed people and people used it as a, a place of pilgrimage, I guess, and the settlements grew out of that with fishing and shipbuilding. Um, so it's quite an ancient place, really. So what would St Fittuk think of what's being planned for the land? Well, he's a patron saint of gardeners, so I don't think he'd be too happy that <laughs> his garden, or Tory's garden, been upset and proposed to be industrialised for energy transition, which I should say that the locals are not against energy transition, but um, we're very much against our part being considered for industrialisation to facilitate that. Yeah, you heard that right. The city is looking at taking this small patch of wetlands and pathways and wildlife and building over part of it in the name of a transition to cleaner energy. A clash of climate change solutions, if you will. The company behind the transition zone says it hopes to harness the skills and experience of people in the industry. As far as Mulholland is concerned, there's already too much industry nearby, including a sewage treatment plant and an incinerator. I've usually got sketchers on and they're really comfy. Your feet get really used to them, so when you put something else on, yeah. you notice, don't you? Yeah. My days of high heels are well gone. Mulholland is stepping carefully in her black leather boots as she leads me into the park to the wonders she sees every day in the wetlands. I'll come and see our little ducks. Watch your feet here, it's a bit slippy. Yeah, lots of mallards. And in among them, the moorhens, and so much more. Okay, we're uh, in the middle of the park, and there's various pathways meandering around grass areas and two small uh, duck ponds. There's reed beds, trees, 
lots of foliage, grasses, there's a lot of wildflowers here in summer. There's a grass path going around the duck ponds and that goes towards the sea. But you can see we are getting encroached by industry here in our green space. And we just felt it was just pushed along because of this idea of energy transition. But this is our park, this is what our families enjoy, this is where we walk our dogs, this is where we take exercise. All the things that we've been told to do now, you know, create biodiversity, get out and get more exercise. Think of your mental health and well-being. It's the opposite of what, what, what will happen if the park is removed. It goes against everything. It goes against the twin uh, crisis of biodiversity and environmental issues. So it's, it's just wrong. Consultations are underway with the community, but haunting Mulholland and others fighting this is the ghost of Old Tory, that neighbourhood that was torn down and torn apart in the 1970s to make way for what was considered progress then, the hunt for oil. Now it's the search for sustainable alternatives threatening the community's only green space. I think just means it's fair for everybody, and that's really, I think, our own... Uh, Scottish Government have mentioned that just transition is where no one will be left behind. So what can I say? Just means just. It's just it's for everyone. It's not just for the people that want to make jobs, make money. It's for everybody and that includes us. And this is not the only community that's going to suffer this. Um, you know, this will be happening more in the future, whether it's for housing to supply housing for people moving into areas that need more houses because there's more jobs. You know, there's nobody looking at reusing what's here already. Um, as I say, there's brownfield sites further up the road. The energy transition zone can go ahead. My concerns are, is it the right energy they want to produce? Uh, blue hydrogen's been mentioned. Um, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm just reading what's, what's out there in the papers and things, so. Um, but for me, just means everybody, not just the people who are going to benefit. It's become the cause of Mulholland's life, and she knows she's paid an emotional price from the day she found out about the plan. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And I actually spent the whole weekend, believe it or not, I was crying. Because it just, it just beggars belief that they want to take her part. I'm sorry, I get very emotional about it. Um, I just can't understand why they would rob us of this for money. And that's what I feel about it. That's what I feel, sorry. Um, and I think a lot of people feel the same. It's just not, it's just disbelief with all this industry to cope with here. And yet again, we've been dumped upon. Back in the spider's web, the initial bravado, the certainty that the future of oil and gas is secure, slips a little when I ask what their advice would be to younger men considering getting into the business. So if you were talking to a younger guy about getting in the game, what would your advice be? Not now. Don't do it. Don't do it. Why not? Because of everything that's going on at the moment, it's pretty obvious. You mean the oil and gas? Yeah, everyone's on the way down. People aren't paying as much as they were paying. It's seen as a bad industry to be in. So. The renewable seems to be where everybody's going now, doesn't it? So. Is that an option for you guys? Some of us, possibly. But it's a, it's a, it's a whole, load, whole load of new training. So that's the, that's the hard bit. Right, OK, Ross. So they've got kind of a list. They're saying... 
the price of oil and gas has gone down. It's seen as a bad industry. Renewables seem to be where the future is, but they can't get training for it. That makes the future a lot more questionable. Back beside the sea, Jason Bruce agrees it's no future for the next generation. He says he's seen the damage done to the planet, and he doesn't believe any transition will come quickly enough. Especially, he says, since those who made their fortune here in oil and gas don't want to open their own wallets to help. Outside London, we've got the highest concentration of millionaires, but none of them seem to be putting their hands in their pockets. They're putting their hands in other people's pockets. You seem a bit bitter. I'm not bitter, I'm just, I'd say realistic. <laughs> but it bothers you? It bothers me that there doesn't seem to be any joined up thinking about the future. And it also kind of worries me that this could that could be deliberate because at the moment we're still taking along with uh, the industries they know, the oil and gas. And there's a bigger picture than making money and driving our cars around. We're, we're talking about damage to the planet and quite possibly soon irreversible damage to the planet. So that's where my concerns and possibly bitterness come into it. And from the hill above the port, Leslie Ann Mulholland thinks transition, at least part of it, is coming too quickly, without enough planning, without enough consideration for what could be lost. And that's in spite of the fact she and other residents readily support the shift to renewables and away from fossil fuels. Is it really green to give up a green space for supposed green energy? And that's just in very simple terms. Is it actually justified to take away an already um, green space for energy transition when it can happen elsewhere? The relentless rhythm of the ocean waves is a reminder of the staying power of nature and of the city that lies beside these shores. But climate change threatens Aberdeen's balance and its stability. All of it speaks to the complexity created by considering what a just transition means. It's not only the workers worried about their jobs, it's the young people searching for their place in the world as they become adults. It's people who fear a newer, greener economy may spur the very kind of new enterprise that would lay waste to their dreams. It seems almost certain that the transition, whenever it comes here, won't be just for everyone. And just a note, we requested comment from Aberdeen City Council on the proposed energy transition zone, but it didn't provide a statement before our deadline. The Trouble with Transition originally aired in January. It was produced by me, Laura Lynch, producer Molly Siegel, and engineer Matthias Wolfson. The What on Earth team includes associate producer Rachel Sanders and producer Kristen Nelson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.